a drug addiction is you chasing the echo of a, a brilliant song that was once sung to you. And before you realize it, once you get to the end of the cave, you're just surrounded in darkness hearing the weird tweaked misshapen song that you once heard. In this episode, we are joined by Tommy Parker, a Marine Corps veteran who deployed for his first and only time to Afghanistan with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment. In December 2010, while on foot patrol, Tommy stepped on an improvised explosive device, resulting in the amputation of his right leg above the knee, his left leg at the hip, and all of his fingers on his left hand, saving his thumb. For the next 18 months, Tommy went through extensive rehabilitation to learn to live his life without his legs. Tommy returned to Montana, where his hometown community rallied to welcome him home. Soon after, he lost his purpose in life and replaced it with drugs. This led him down the long, dark road of substance abuse for the better part of a decade, ultimately resulting him in spending 18 months incarcerated. While incarcerated, Tommy turned his life around and found his purpose to push once again. Since then, he has gone on to become an adaptive athlete. He has competed in seven half marathons, one full marathon, and is currently training to race in his first Ironman. Tommy continues to push himself every day with his training and has future goals of starting his own business with the help of Warrior Rising, as well as competing in larger scale marathons such as the Boston Marathon. Tommy continues helping others by shattering perceived limitations and stereotypes that disabled people can't and showing that disabled people will. Tommy's unique ability to find light and darkness and find comedy in dim situations allows him to have a potentially greater impact on those to whom he speaks. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Tommy, what's going on, man? We're super stoked to have you on for this episode. And um, I think it's been a while since we last saw you. And it's great to have you on and just hear your full story. So thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, so last time uh, for people listening that we saw you was in salt lake city yep and uh at the warrior rising event and um no that was mission six zero warrior no rising? it was a warrior, warrior rising, rising. Yeah. Warrior rising event. yeah that's yeah. right it yeah, was yeah. uh it was a business shower the first one that they they actually ran that year to be be precise it was yeah. cool yeah. i was getting confused because i feel like they both uh come together like for the same events and all that yeah. just because jason runs both but it's a lot of the staff that did uh, both yeah both events so yeah. Well, to get started, uh, we have a lot to talk about with you tonight, and I want to kind of obviously just go full circle, but let's start with the beginning and, and what encouraged you to want to be part of the Marine Corps? Like, where did that kind of story come about? Um, so what encouraged me, I guess, to be part of the Marine Corps uh, isn't anything cool, to be entirely honest. <laughs> um, I know some people that are like, oh, I had a, I had a call to purpose, and um, you know, it, especially around my generation being 31 with uh, you know, I was in sixth grade during 9-11 and stuff. So you think I might add a call to purpose, but actually all that happened was um, I didn't take school serious. Mm-hmm. I, I partied and just went there to hang out with, with girls because I couldn't find them anywhere else. School was the easiest spot, in my opinion. Um, and then I thought I was going to make it to college ball and play in the NFL. I was a big dude. Um, I was strong. I was athletic. Uh, but I didn't know that colleges wanted you to have like, you know, good grades and stuff for them to give you scholarships or anything. So when I tried to go to college, uh, they said, yeah, you could come play, but we can't 
give you any money to go to school here. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't go to school because I couldn't afford school. So um, I had a buddy that was my best friend in high school, joined the Marine Corps. And uh, he actually asked me to go talk to the recruiter um, because he was on recruiter's assistance. Um, I'd already spoken to a recruiter when I was in high school. And uh, he, I was three or five pounds overweight, something like that, the day that I met with him. Uh, and it was the day wrestling season started. And so I was like, dude, if you wait till after practice, I'll wait what you want me to. And he was like, nope, <laughs> nope, lose the weight and then we can talk. So I was real mad at the Marine Corps until I talked to the second recruiter and he shot me straight. And uh, yeah, the Marine Corps was awesome. Where were you at during 9-11? Because that's interesting. You're the same age as I am. And I was in sixth grade when it happened. Um, I was sitting in my living room eating a bowl of cereal. Uh, I didn't see the first plane hit. Um but I remember uh, my mom and stepdad at the time talking about it and saying like, oh, that's weird. I wonder how often that happens because it was on TV. So you think it was like a freak of nature. Or we some all sort thought of it was fluke. an accident. Yeah. Yeah. It was some sort of a fluke. And then on live television, the second one hit. And then it was like, whoa, we spent uh, all day because my girlfriend's the same age. We spent all day in school uh, just watching the news and talking about it. And uh, I mean, in sixth grade, I couldn't comprehend or or grasp no. what it just occurred Mm-mm. it's it's that second plane that hit that's where all of our thoughts were like no nah, this isn't an accident yeah this, this is this is, is an attack and then on. two more planes yeah, it doesn't it doesn't accidentally happen multiple times no. yeah so what um so what was your mos going in the marine corps like did you kind of have a separate idea of what you wanted to become or did you always know what you were going to go into um so when i went and spoke to the recruiter initially i told him i wanted to be in the infantry Mm-hmm. Um, like the good recruiter he was, he was like, there's no spots available uh, when there really was. <laughs> so just trying to fill all the other ones. Yep. But um, I ended up going in uh, 03 um, open is what my contract was. So infantry mm-hmm. open. Um, I went through the school of infantry and everything ended up being in 0311, uh, which is your basic rifleman for those of yep. you that are listening that don't know. Um, and then from after I got done with all my, my schooling, I got sent to the Fleet Marine Force uh, at uh, Camp Pendleton mm. on San Mateo, to be exact. Yeah. Um, be, uh, and I was with 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment. I don't know how I stumbled over where I was. It's not stolen valor. I know where I was. No, but... Uh, um, <laughs> we're going to get called out. <laughs> yeah, they're like, is this guy really a veteran? Like, no, uh, birth defect. It's not even a... Anyway, um, <laughs> no, I was at uh, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment uh, on San Mateo on the north end of Camp Pendleton. Um, and then September 28th of... Do you just want me to keep rolling or are you going to ask me more questions? No, no, you know, keep no, keep going because I want to yeah. hear it kind of front to back. Okay, okay. Um, September 28th of 2010, uh, I went on my first and only deployment. Um, we deployed to Sangin, Afghanistan, and then while on a dismounted patrol, uh, December 11th of 2010, uh, I stepped on an improvised explosive device resulting in the loss of all the fingers on my left hand. Sorry, my hand looks gross. Um, you can't see my, my right leg. Uh, it amputated my right leg just above the knee and it amputated my left leg at the hip. So ultimately what it did is it left me four foot two. 220 pounds and brutally handsome. Um, and you know, I've been trying to wade through that ever since, but you know, it's in, so is it true that they call Camp Pendleton Marines Hollywood Marines? Yes. Okay. That's what I've heard. So I grew up and, and Dan spent most of his time in uh, Yucca Valley. So we were right outside 29 Palms Marine Base. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've ever been. I've been there. It's horrible. Is, 
Oh, every <laughs> Marine, when, I think when they get their papers that they're getting stationed 29, they're like, fuck. I got to yeah, go there. One of my best friends when we went through the school of infantry. So at the end of the school of infantry, they give everybody their papers saying where they're going and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys that I went through in school of infantry with got uh, orders to one seven, which is out in 29 Palms. And uh, we didn't mm -hmm. know anything about where that was yet or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and then he went out there and he called me like the week after he got there. And he's like, dude, this is hell. This is literally yeah. hell. I hate this place. And most of those Marines go down to Camp Pendleton to get away. Like yes, they'll go to they the beaches to. down there. They'll go to Huntington Beach. They'll go to like Riverside. They'll, most of them, and I think the the nearby places of anything to do is they'll leave base and go to like Palm Springs. There's just nothing or to, to do out there. Or go to Vegas, cut across yeah, yeah. Anvoy Road. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, we're we're complaining about it being really hot and there's nothing being out there. But if you're if you're an infantry Marine, Twenty Nine Palms is a cool place because mm -hmm. all of their ranges are live fire. I mean, what are you mm -hmm. going to ruin in yep. the desert other than the desert tortoise, um, yeah. which ruins itself if you scare it. So it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> or if you pick them up on the side of the road, they piss themselves and they die. They die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What kind of self -defense? People don't know that. Yeah, yeah. People don't know that. I thought people would know by now. But every time it's funny you mention Amboy, because if I make that drive out there, you get a lot of the Instagram influencers that are out there taking photos near the uh, the old Roy's diner. And then there's mm -hmm. always like tortoise crossing and people are just like, Oh, I'm going to pick them up and help them. So they don't get hit. And you're like, Hey, you just killed it. Good job. Yep. It does. It, you killed it. <laughs> and you committed a federal offense. Yeah. <laughs> they, they shut down ranges when I was in 29 Palms. Cause we thought that there was a turtle on it. Like it was crazy. But I remember growing up out near there and you'd hear your windows shake. You'd hear the bombing and we loved it. So I know okay. Marines, you know, when they have those live fire ranges, that's probably the best place to be. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. And so, and to go back, you know, obviously you talked about the accident that you had and that was in Iraq, Afghanistan, Afghanistan, yeah. excuse me. How did that go about? Like, I kind of want to hear more of the, the story behind that and what happened on that patrol. Okay. Um, how gruesome do you want it to be? Uh, because I was, uh, conscious. I remember most of it. Okay. Mm. I would say so, whatever you're comfortable with sharing, this is yeah, your story. Okay. So we're on okay. your time. <laughs> then let's uh let's wade down this rabbit hole so as i said a second ago um december 11th of 2010 i stepped on an impro ah, improvised explosive device mm -hmm. or ied anyway um prior to that the day before we'd been given information that there was an ied in front of this farmer's house that he wanted detonated because he was fearful of his um kids getting injured. One thing mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't realize is that there were a lot of civilian casualties because of IEDs over there, because mm -hmm. the Taliban doesn't remember where they're at, nor do they care, really. Um, at least not that I saw. Anyway, so we looked at it, uh, the information and built the train model and everything. And it honestly looked like an ambush to me. Like I was like, I don't like this. Um, but we went anyway. Um, by then, we'd taken so many casualties that my what used to be my team had been completely dissolved and sent to different parts of the squad. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a full squad anymore. Um, and I was the last guy out of 20. Wow. We, we walked all the way out there. Uh, we found the IEDs. We detonated them in place. Nothing bad happened. Everything was okay. And then we turned around and, was, and uh, returned to base. Um, and we, when we set up our route, our put, or, yeah, our patrol base could see this ridge line all the way up to a road that locals regularly drove on. So we could maintain or we could follow a similar route because they couldn't backlight. It was already cleared as long as our post was doing their job. Um, 
at the top of the ridge, the road that the locals drove on when we turned off of it and turned left, um, we'd barely gotten off the road and we got shot at. Being the last guy out of 20, I turned around and held rear security trying to figure out where it came from. Uh, I was unable to figure out where it came from and our squad leader said that we needed to push on because it would be hard to find IEDs in the dark and it would soon be dark. It was about 4.35 p.m. kind of getting dusk. Um, so we turned around and to try to hold rear security, myself and another Marine uh, began to leapfrog, meaning that he would hold and I would move forward. And once I was said, he would move forward. Um, and we've done that maybe twice. I might've made it 50 feet. And I felt an instant overwhelming pressure uh, and weightlessness um, as though I was floating in the air. Wow. For those of you that have played sports or football or anything, um, and you've had somebody kind of ear hole you on both sides of your helmet, you get discombobulated briefly. That's exactly what it was like. like I couldn't hear anything. I was dizzy and discombobulated. Um, and then I slammed back into the ground and then time went back to normal. When I was floating or weightless, it seemed like time had almost stood still. Everything mm -hmm. was really, really slow. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it really did or anything like that, but that's how it appeared to me. And then once I slammed back into the ground, I was now sitting in uh, the crater that was formed by the explosion. I immediately looked down at my legs or what used to be my legs. Um, my right leg, I could see exposed bone uh, on the end of my leg, which what I assume is my tibia and fibia. Mm -hmm. And my left leg looked like it had been ran through a meat grinder, just a mass of hamburger held together by rubber bands and tendons. Jeez. Um, and that's when and it was so dusty, I couldn't have seen my hand in front of my face if I wanted to. Um, and then shortly after I hit the ground, what seemed like literally milliseconds, um, a figure came rushing through the dust and it was our corpsman. He was telling me to lay down. And uh, I refused to lay down, honestly. I, I was looking at stuff kind of in awe. And uh, it's funny, he's maybe five foot tall. He grabbed me by my chest and slammed me onto my back um, <laughs> and then started working on me. And so they put a tourniquet on my right, or they got an IV in my right arm, put a tourniquet on my right leg, and it started to put tourniquets and combat gauze on my left leg. Um, and that's when the, the stretcher arrived. But before that, Herrera kept yelling, which was our corpsman's name, um, I can't get it to stop bleeding. I can't get it to stop bleeding. He had put two tourniquets on my left leg and stuffed it as full of combat gauze that he could fit inside of it, and it wouldn't stop bleeding. Jeez. Um, they got me on the, uh, the stretcher. Um, a dude that I'm actually still very close friends with uh, carried the stretcher up to me. We got me loaded down and we started to go down this ridge. Um, and we were slanted kind of like this. I don't, there we go. Kind of like that, if that gives you an idea. Um, and so the corpsman was trying to carry the IV bag and not be in the way of anybody. And so I took it from him. That way he didn't have to walk outside of what I thought was a cleared path. As we're walking down the, the hill, I'm holding my own IV bag and I ask another gentleman named Tomasu. I was like, dude, are my legs still there? Like I can feel them. Like, and he's like, no, bro, they're gone. And then I asked him this, the second most important question that everybody I ever treated that got blown up asked me. Uh, and I was like, bro, is my shit still there? And he's like, you're what? I was like, bro, like my dick, like, is everything still there? And it hurt my feelings because I asked him, I was like, and he's like, oh, I didn't check. I was like, what? Hold on a second. We've been around <laughs> explosions, bro. Like, Stop you know that I'm going to ask you that at some point in time. Uh, everything's still there. But uh, so then after that, somebody asked Finney, the guy that carried the stretcher, he's like, hey, is the route cleared? 
this is kind of irrelevant, but I, I think it's funny. Um, he kind of mumbles something indiscernible, and they ask again if the route's cleared, and uh, he says, no. So we think we're going to step on an IED. We don't. We make it to the truck. Um, in the on our Cassie back down the hill, they pull or the IV gets pulled out of my arm because I had to let go of it. Um, and then so this part I don't remember, uh, but I like telling it. So the guy that carried the stretcher told me that he got when we got to the truck, he asked me um, how I was doing. And apparently I responded all bloody and bandaged. Thumbs up all day, bro. And then they loaded me on the truck. <laughs> I don't remember that. Um, he tells me that I said it and he's not really a bullshitter. So I believe him. I said it. But uh, after they got me on the truck, I don't really remember everything that clearly. It was really hazy in and out. The only thing I do remember is I kept arguing with the corpsman that I wouldn't die. I just needed to take a nap. And he told me that I would, in fact, die. I could not nap. Um, and one time I tried to fall asleep and he kept, I don't know how else to describe this, but he kept bitch slapping me every time that my eyes would close at all. It's he almost like when you get a concussion, they, they got to keep you awake. He would yeah. slap the shit out of me every time my eyes closed. <laughs> Um, and then from there, uh, I briefly remember being loaded on the helicopter. Uh, I don't really tell that part of the story because it's really fuzzy and I don't like memory is interesting. We like to fabricate things and I don't want mm -hmm. it to be untrue. Yeah. Um, from there, I was snowed and I woke up in the hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, mm. three days later. Um, when you say you're snowed, what do you, what do you mean by that? They put me to sleep is what, that's what I was told is called. Um, mm. almost like in a coma. Yeah, a medically induced coma. Or, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the reason why I asked that is because I, I think I've heard that term before too, and I believe uh, not only do they put you on a medically induced coma, but the way that I understood, they even put you on ice to like oh, okay. slow everything down. Oh, but okay. I don't, I, I don't know, know if that's hundred percent accurate, but that that's what I thought it was, and so I didn't know if you knew. That would make sense. No, I didn't know. Story. I just I got I got told by the medical staff that they snowed me and transported me. I'm like, okay. Yeah. That's, well, thank you, you just took an ice bath for three days. <laughs> okay. Um. But yeah, then I woke up in Bethesda, Maryland, and when I opened my eyes, uh, I saw my mom and my uncle Rick. Uh, it had only been three days, um, and but to me it had been minutes and hours, not days. So I thought I was still in Afghanistan, and uh, I began to panic, tell them they couldn't be here, they're not safe. Uh, I was put back to sleep and woke up either later that day or, or the following day, I don't know. Um, and when I asked my mom, she couldn't remember. And... Uh, yeah, from there I learned, I tried to learn my, my perceived disabled life, if you will. Uh, 10 days after I made it to the hospital was the first time I sat up in my hospital bed and crawled into my wheelchair. Um, the nurses told wow. me that, that that was a very quick time, that they hadn't seen many other people do it that quickly wow. and asked what my driving factor was. And I didn't have one. Uh, I said, I got tired of looking at the walls in my room, but as I've gotten older and looked back on it, um, my driving factor was, so four days before I got injured, um, the guy I would say I was probably the closest with in my platoon and my team got injured. We have the almost the same exact injuries, um, except wow. he has two fingers on his left hand. But he got moved into my room in the hospital. And so we were roommates and everything. And uh, to have a brother, I guess, next to me yeah. was, was really nice. I remember one morning, we had just gotten breakfast and I don't it just, it was a tough morning. I don't know what it was. I was crying alligator tears, like grown ass alligator tears, trying to figure out what I was going to do. 
And he calmly said to me, he's like, dude, it sucks. Trust me. He's like, but we got to keep fucking moving forward. It is what it is. Yeah. Um, and I said, okay. And I didn't believe the words then. I didn't know how to, but now I understand. That's a hard thing I can imagine too, to push yourself through to be one day you're walking and then in split seconds, you know, mentally that you're never going to walk again properly. Okay. I, you said properly. I was going to say, um, they did, a, they do a good job when you yeah. first get, get injured, um, of trying to, to keep you filled with hope, I guess mm -hmm. that like, Oh yeah, we're going to get you rebuilt. We're going to get you prosthetics. We're going to get you moving. Um, but <laughs> being a hip disarticulate. So to, to play off of what you said, me regularly walking like a regular ambulation isn't isn't a thing at least with the yeah. technology that exists now isn't a thing that'll be ever again like mm -hmm. can i walk uh i do have prosthetics i do walk sometimes um will i be able to walk for special occasions or something like that yeah but uh something that might make the the users laugh or the the listeners laugh and everything um i haven't had legs so long i forgot what it's like to have them really I forgot what I, I could not tell you what it was like to walk. Yeah, interesting. Or to run or it or anything like that. Okay. So here's another thing. I have I have not stood up to pee in eleven years. So I don't remember what that's like. <laughs> I it makes sense because I can imagine if you go on for so long and you adapt, you're just kinda like, Okay, well this is what it is and I don't remember what it was like back then, so this is who I am now. Yeah. And, and people look at me and say like, oh, you had your legs taken. So I was 21. Like, oh, you had your legs taken from you at such a young age. Like, that's got to be horrible. Like, it gave me a lot of time to still learn. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. You know, it, as we get further into my story with this podcast, you'll understand that I'm a person that learns from failure. So I needed a lot of time to learn. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that's such... We were we were talking earlier um, with somebody else as as well, and we were talking about especially just going back to your foot patrols and everything mm -hmm. as as a marine, just that whole experience. And and a lot of people don't understand what it's like, especially that time in the war, um, clearing IEDs, doing a lot of battle space ownership, and trying to be like the con constant presence in the area. And I could just imagine, like you said, you're you, you know you're platoon your squad was getting wiped out left and right i mean what i guess how did mentally you stay in the fight like even just stay to where you had to keep going out on mission and things like that i know it's recalling a little bit but okay um it, it's it's simple i guess for me to recall if i had to try to bring it up um loyalty is a really really big thing to me Mm -hmm. uh, when we did, when we deployed, uh, a lot of like we got told where we were going. A lot of guys looked, you know, researched it, tried to see what was on the news, try to ask. Um, I didn't do that uh, because I didn't care. Like to this day, mm -hmm. I can tell you why they sent us there, like why they sent us there, but I don't know why they sent us there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and so, what kept me going is that like I had to. Like, I'm naturally a funny, like a, a funny dude that tries to find silver linings and everything. And I felt at least in Afghanistan that if, if I let that lapse, that, that the morale would break. Like there were mm -hmm. there, every time we stepped out, somebody got shot at or, or blown up or, or something like that. I mean, a prime example of like 
being shot at wasn't that that big of a fear, which probably will catch some people off guard listening to this if they've never been shot at. But if you're if you don't understand the principles of marksmanship, like I'm, I'll stand in front of you. I don't care. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. But when I can't see a threat, that's more mm. terrifying to me. I, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, we, we, we've talked about it once before on here. It's like um, one of the missions that, well, I've been on plenty of those missions, but just I, I would agree. Like being in the face of your enemy, them shooting at you is a completely different process, whereas you not knowing at any moment where you might step or take a knee or cross something and just in a flash, things will change. Like that's that's so much more terrifying to yeah. try and process well i think it comes back to to what you can control in it so mm-hmm. anytime that that i looked down the sites and was engaging a combative um i trusted in the fact that the marine corps has literally force fed me with a fire hose the principles of marksmanship and that i'm going to be able to shoot better than them Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you put IEDs and other things like that in there, then it just becomes fucking luck. Yeah. yeah. Like, like I'll tell you. For that. So like I said, I was the 20th guy when we walked over it. So four, 39 people walked over my IED because we walked over yeah. it and then back over it before I stepped on it. Jeez. That's crazy. It's entirely luck. Yeah. And, that, and, it, like, and it's, it's interesting because I've, I've even talked to other veterans that have, lost limbs or just been struck by ADs. And it was the same scenario where they would just be walking by themselves or they would be, you know, on a foot patrol going near a bridge where they saw other IDs and they're staying away from those. But then all of a sudden they go down another path and there's more because the enemy was so smart to divert two mm-hmm. different like corridors of them. Mm-hmm. And you just don't know. And, and, and to kind of back up, you know, like you said, you like to have humor and things and you like to be mm-hmm. funny. I noticed that right away when we met you in Salt Lake. Is like obviously seeing that, you know, you've been, you know, have physical, you know, challenges and the things you've been around, but seeing how you were so positive about it and how funny you were. Like, I think I remember we were outside and you were making a joke with, it might have even been JC, but you're like, oh, I'll just crawl out of my wheelchair and like come at uh, you and start hammer fisting you. Tom, that was yeah. Tom. And I was laughing so hard because you're like, dude, if I'm on the ground out of my wheelchair is when I'm my strongest and you don't want to fight me on the ground. It is. I'm on a stable, <laughs> I'm on a stable battle position there. And, and, and to go from my point exactly is, you know, what are some of the most challenging, you know, obstacles you've had to overcome and how have you been able to stay so positive? Um, I want to steal Joey Jones's quote. Uh, you can steal it. It's fine. Yeah. Joey Jones's quote is like, <laughs> If you don't have your legs, how are you so happy? Well, you have both ears. How are you so angry? It's something to that effect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whoever listens to this that knows the real words of it, I apologize for plagiarizing it incorrectly. But um, <laughs> the hardest thing to overcome since I've been injured or one of the hardest things, uh, reintegration of self-worth. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to present something to you with this. Um, Dara and I actually had a conversation about this. Men are not innately valued in society. They're valued because of things that they provide security, things like that. Okay. Um, and so before I got injured, I was six, three, 220, 250 pounds. I was a big, you're a big guy. Um, 
now that I got injured. Uh, I'm, like I said, four foot two, uh, 220, 210 right now. I don't know. Um, but I didn't feel I could protect myself mm-hmm. when I first got injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody that teaches you in the military. So if you go through any m- military training, they teach you about soft targets, hard targets, things like that. And so I felt for the, anybody listening that doesn't know that a soft target is an easy target. A hard target is somebody that would be harder to take. Pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt being a person in a wheelchair, I was a soft target, uh, which I'm trying to think of the word to use amplifies, I guess your initial PTSD. So I don't have yeah. any PTSD currently. I'm still rated for it, but it doesn't negatively impact my life in any way that mm-hmm. I feel currently. That's great. Um, <laughs> it took a long time. But uh, so I was worried that I was going to get hurt or beat up or, or robbed or something crazy. I didn't feel like I could protect myself. I went from a violent, chaotic, kinetic area to Southern California, like hanging out in the sun, but still worried that I couldn't protect myself. Um, I had a guy that was a, a Muay Thai fighter try to teach me how to fight out of my wheelchair, stuff like that. Um, and I had to, like I just brought up, failure. I had to go through some pointless things in my own hand to figure out that I'm actually still very capable. Um, I'd overcome adversities that I fostered actually. So uh, to tell a little more about my story, you would think after I got injured and everything that I would just try to stay on the, like the straight path, figure out how to be disabled and go on and be successful. Mm-hmm. But no, I decided to beta test narcotics for the better part of a decade. Um, starting off with opiates, I realized quickly that opiates don't just work for body pain. If you uh, are mentally upset in any way, they will make everything's okay. You could get hit by a car, snort three oxys and be fine. Um, Or at least that's what I believed at the time. And so (laughs) it grew bigger and bigger and bigger and out of control. And while this was going on, nobody really knew what was going on because I kept it quiet. Um, my, My close family didn't. There were some friends and other people that knew that I honestly didn't think would care or judge me or I didn't care about their opinion of me. They weren't people mm-hmm. that I valued. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this went on and went on further and it got bigger and bigger. And uh, so I also got given a house by Homes for Our Troops and uh, some other nonprofits had been trying to help me do some things. And um, I spit in all their faces. So December 11th of 2016, Okay, so we fast forward a little bit. Um, my house got raided by the Lake County Sheriff's Department the first time. Is is that okay. exactly five years to the day of your injury? <laughs> yes, it is. It's oh, wow. exactly. Wow. Um, it was on purpose. <laughs> it was on purpose. Yeah, that makes sense. You planned so, it. So uh, they the police didn't plan it. Uh, I brought up a gentleman earlier. Um, we'll call him Monty uh, in in the podcast that was injured four days before me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had heard that I was struggling with drugs. And um, so he reached out to some of the other guys that helped Cassie back me, treat me, that I was in the Marine Corps with and everything. And they did a surprise intervention on the day I was injured. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Lake County Sheriff's Department took it as an opportunity to enter my house without a legal search warrant and search oh, and wow. raid my home. Um, they raided my home, uh, they secured drugs, money, people everything and then the marines entered um and to show you the kind of mindset i was in i thought i would comically try to interject at some points in times when they pulled out their prepared words to read to me 
And then there were other people that I literally told, I don't know why you even came. We aren't fucking friends. I didn't like you when we were in the Marine Corps. Mm. Um, like that's the mentality I was into these gentlemen trying to help me. Um, yeah. Then, so my mom was also working with them and had, they'd all planned for me to go to treatment. So I'd already gone to treatment twice by this time. Altogether, I've gone to uh, drug treatment nine times. Um, and I've gone to PTSD treatment twice total, I think. Uh, but that's just because every time that I would get incarcerated or start to get in trouble, um, I would be like, I have a problem. Will you fix me? And then they would send me somewhere to fix me, but I wouldn't be willing to be fixed. I would play their game. So after that, they were supposed to take, take me to a drug treatment center in Sheridan, Wyoming. Um, Monty drove me down there. And what nobody knew when they uh, raided the house is that I snuck drugs out of the raid. Um, and I snuck them into treatment with me. And I overdosed on heroin in a mm. hospital room at a VA drug treatment center in Sheridan, Wyoming. Um, mm. the, the, so when we got there, they didn't actually have a room open for me, even though they said that they did, they actually acted like they didn't even know I was coming. They put me in a regular hospital room to detox, uh, didn't search my gear or anything like that. And so I continued to use, uh, OD, they Narcan me in the hospital. Um, and if, for those of you that don't know, Narcan forces your body into immediate opiate withdrawal. So I spent 72 hours purging everything that was in my body out of any end it felt like coming out of. Jeez. And, uh, but well, that happened, I got a phone call from my attorney who told me that the sheriff's department didn't have a warrant. And so not anything that they found, I couldn't be charged with. Uh, it also meant that I didn't have to stay in the treatment center anymore. So I immediately left against medical advisement. Um, one good thing did come of it, though. While there, I decided that I was no longer going to do heroin, mm. only meth. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cold so turkey. Yeah, I, cold turkey. I took off from there. What? You went cold turkey. Uh, I went cold turkey from heroin using yeah. meth. <laughs> That's an upgrade. It's has it doesn't have uh, as bad a withdrawals from it. I can tell you that much. <laughs> but do you want me to keep going down this this story? Do you guys have yeah, any questions? No, I, know, this is, no, I have. I'm going to bring up questions after because I don't want to cut you off, and uh, I think it's just fair for you to share the full length of it. Yeah. Um. I guess. All right. I will tell until I got incarcerated, and then we'll pause there until I went cool. to jail the first time. Um. From there, I went back to Montana, and then three months later, uh, almost exactly, it was March 10th of uh, 2017, my house got raided the second time by the Lake County Sheriff's Department. And after they raided it the second time, um, because I ran from the treatment center in Wyoming, um, they put me in jail that night uh, in an isolation cell because the little tiny jail up where I'm at doesn't know how to properly house somebody in a wheelchair. So mm. for the safety of myself and others, I got put into an isolation cell. Um, and then from there, they sent me to Louisiana to go to a drug treatment program uh, where they didn't think I could run from. Uh, I actually spent the entire time at that drug treatment center. I spent four months there. 
I almost got kicked out of it because I tried to uh, coerce one of the locals into calling somebody that they knew and having them bring meth to the treatment thing. And then they told on me. Um, Shit. Jeez. And then from there, I came back to Lake County and Lake County left me alone. The sheriff's department, everything left me alone. Uh, I should have known why they were leaving me alone, but they were building a case. Um, and then eventually I got, the only thing they were able to finally ever to get stick to me was a possession charge of uh, heroin liquid or trace amounts of heroin. When they raided my house the second time on March 10th, they, um, I told them that everything that they found in the house was mine before they even searched the whole house. And then um, I am on body cam footage telling an officer that what is in your hand is a syringe filled with heroin liquid that belongs to me, Thomas Parker. And so we couldn't get out of that charge uh, mm. because that's kind of ironclad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I was sentenced on February 8th of 2018 to uh, a three-year um, Department of Corrections charge and sent up the stream. So do you want me to talk yeah. about, because from there is where the rest of my story, once I get out from that first yeah. charge, is where it ties into uh, re reconnecting with my now girlfriend who actually got me to be sober. So. Oh, that's a whole lot. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot to unpack. That's yeah. crazy, like how much you went through, like just getting out of the service and then that's where your life went. So what, what, I mean, I know you could probably have a, a million different excuses. I'm sure you used all of them throughout the process, but what's, what do you think was the driving factor that that made drugs kind of the I guess the easy escape or the thing mm. that you felt was was solving a problem? Um, so I've I've reviewed this heavily, I guess, if you will, um, both in jail and, and in my time in sobriety. And I don't think it was solving a problem, um, but I mean, it, it could be viewed as that. So I had a void in me, obviously. Um, you know, Dan, you understand being a, being a veteran in the sense that when you were in, you had a purpose, you had a team, you had a job, you had something like that. Um, you get out, you don't have that. Uh, so I could have been filling that void. But to be entirely honest, I actually said this in front of the judge when she asked me, like, I did drugs because I like them. Mm -hmm. Even sitting mm -hmm. in front of you right now in this podcast, like, I still like them. One of the most incredible experiences I've ever had in my life was the first time I shot at Matt. Um, and which sounds weird, but I want to explain it to you. So the, when you have, um, I'm trying to think how to explain it. So your body naturally releases dopamine, mm -hmm. but the largest natural release of dopamine is when you orgasm and it's around 500 milligrams for a healthy adult. When you inject methamphetamine into your system, you release 1500 milligrams of dopamine. That's crazy. Wow. And so it is literally the most uh, incredible thing I have I've ever tried. Um, and to describe a drug addiction, I'm glad I get to use this. I thought of it the other day. Uh, a drug addiction is you chasing the echo of a, a brilliant song that was once sung to you. And before you mm -hmm. realize it, once you get to the end of the cave, you're just surrounded in darkness, hearing the weird, tweaked, misshapen song that you once heard. You know, it's wow. crazy about that is that I've heard that exact um, description of it before because you know people I grew up around out there in the desert and all that um, mm. were using yeah. heroin and meth out there yep. and described the same thing that it was an escape and that it was an ultimate peak 
and of that dopamine level. And it's kind of like, uh, it's nowhere similar, but I mean, you're hearing a lot of like hallucinogens, hallucinogenic drugs being used nowadays, which obviously mm -hmm. you have, you know, natural like DMT or dopamine levels in your brain. Mm -hmm. So people are taking drugs to enhance that. So it makes sense that, you know, people are using heroin or meth to bring out that and to distract kind of the reality of facing the challenges. Yeah. And, and I wish I could say I was, I was doing that, but in this time frame of my addiction, uh, was the most challenging time frame of my life to be entirely honest. Um, mm -hmm. I got my house taken. So I was homeless in a wheelchair in Montana. Okay. Throughout the winter, throughout the summer, everything like that. Um, nice. and then, uh, right before I went to, uh, when right before I got incarcerated the first time, I'd pissed some people off that stole my wheelchair. Okay. They stole my <laughs> wheelchair. And, and it was during the winter. All right. Oh, I man. crawled through the snow. We're talking like, like chest deep snow. Okay. Um, and I didn't care. So here's a, to find a silver lining with it. Okay. So when I first got injured, people would invite me over for dinner or to do things. And they wouldn't think about it. I carry myself in a way that you don't see me as disabled, or at least I try to have you not. Um, and so they wouldn't think about it. And then I go to their house and all of a sudden there's stairs or there's something like that. And I can't get in their house. And so I wouldn't go because sitting on the floor is weird. Like being an amputee already draws attention. If you're mm -hmm. an amputee sitting on the floor, like if you were to walk into your living room mm -hmm. tomorrow and I'm just sitting on your floor, you would, you would pause and panic for a second. You're like, Whoa, why is there a, a legless man on the floor. And so <laughs> I didn't like that attention. Yeah. But during my addiction, going to some of the places I went and everything, I didn't have that option. Mm -hmm. And so it forced, like, I guess not forced me. I forced myself to go through things that I wouldn't have willingly gone through had I not been in the pursuit of narcotics. And in doing so, it made me realize how capable I am. So we spoke about earlier that I had a man teach me how to fight after I got injured. Um, the stuff that he taught me, I've not used ever, but I've been in several fights since being injured. Every time I get thrown on the ground or something mm. like that. And I realized, and I've even been jumped by multiple people. Um, Jeez. And I realized that I am capable. I'm capable of anything and everything. Mm -hmm. I just have to yep. approach it differently. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to, because I guess the way I want to approach this is identifying the markers, I suppose, of somebody who's going down that path. Um, like, how did you see yourself going that way? And were you, obviously you were getting people that were trying to help, mm -hmm. but was there ever a time where it, you almost got to a point, you almost had a breakthrough, you almost had somebody kind of pull you out of that, that path, but you just, obviously clawed your way right back into it um the one that i think so the only other option or time that i would have quit doing drugs um was the very first time i went to to drug treatment uh, at the time i was engaged to a woman that we're going to leave nameless um and uh i was engaged to her because <laughs> I, she couldn't testify against me at that point in time, to be honest, if she was mm -hmm. going to be my wife. Um, but she got tired of our lifestyle and she went to treatment herself. Um, she had two kids. I'd been with her for close to five years. Mm -hmm. And uh, after she did that, I decided that, okay, I should change 
because I wanted my old lifestyle back. I wanted, I didn't want to be alone. I had, my identity was in those three. And uh, so I went to treatment. It was the first time I let everybody close to me know that I was a drug addict. Like my mom drove me and my stepdad, everything. They drove me to treatment, talked to me about it. I, the day before I got released from that treatment, I talked to my ex fiance on the phone and I said, Hey, like I got, you know, I got sober. Can we go back to what we were? Um, if nothing else, can we at least be friends and see where it builds? And she told me, no. Um, she said that that chapter in our lives had already passed. Uh, she wished me the best of luck. And I got released from treatment and immediately relapsed. Okay. So that was the only other time, I guess, prior to actually getting sober that I would have been willing to try to get sober. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I can, I can think of several times where I had like mental breakdowns kind of, um, and sat crying before I got high or even after I got high sometimes, which was really weird. Cause you to be like feeling that euphoric, but also that sad at the same time. Um, but where I hated my life, like it, it seemed a, an elliptical hell that I had manufactured. Mm -hmm. Like it was just the same thing over and over and over again, the same dumb stuff. Um, but I was willing to look over or look past all of the, the bad side of it just for the brief moment. Cause we're like, when you, when you shoot up the part that I'm talking about, when you actually inject math, the part I'm talking about maybe lasts for three to seven seconds. And then you just feel weird and like whimsically moving the entire day. Like, and so I was able to, I, it, it's incredible look, thinking about it now, actually, that I was willing to look past all the bullshit, honestly. Mm -hmm. like, is, is that even for, something? Um, just for a couple of seconds. I'm, I'm kind of curious if that uh, if it has an effect on you, like obviously having drug abuse, you know, a lot of people that have been drug addicts at one point or another in their life, they can't watch movies where it shows drugs. They can't be around it. Is that kind of similar to you? No. Um, because I view my my drug addiction similar to my PTSD, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so when I first got injured, uh, any time that I heard a gunshot, my body immediately revved up. It's like, oh, stuff's going. Like, um, and I didn't like that because I'm in Montana. People shoot, people hunt, everything like that. And yep. so I, I purposely did exposure therapy to it. Okay. Um, I accidentally did exposure therapy uh, with my drug addiction when I first got sober. Um, so when, no, it, so I don't want to tell part of the other story. I, I'll tell that part. Um, yeah. But no, it, it doesn't. Uh, I still run periodically and okay. uh, or not periodically. I run uh, in my wheelchair five days a week and uh, I'll find drug paraphernalia um, on the ground, use needles, other stuff like that. I found baggies with meth in them. Uh, not a lot, but trace amounts. Um, yeah. And uh, when I found the baggie with meth and picked it up and held it in my hand, uh, my first thought was, you can snort this real quick. No one would know. Uh, I'm not joking. And, it, and if, if there was a bag of meth on the table in front of me right now, that would be my first thought. You could do this. No one would know. You could do it once. Mm -hmm. um, but I have luckily been deliberate and painstaking in the past two and a half years to restructure my life in a different way um, mm -hmm. to where I would have to willingly go against everything I've built uh, 
in search of a relapse. It's 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 kind of interesting, and I'll make a quick point on what you just said. But it's kind of like for me growing up and seeing friends in high school who have been into drugs or see them shoot up, and I've had to be in the same room or whatever. It's like if you've watched Breaking Bad or like other shows that have that, they actually had a pretty like spot on representation of what meth does because I've watched people strung on meth and watched them sit on Mm -hmm. that bed and like they're floating above it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, that's why I kind of asked it is if some people are sensitive of seeing it and it can cause them to relapse. No. And and to to be honest, actually uh, was talking to Dara about it. I want to, I want to watch. So I watched breaking bad before I was a meth addict when I was just addicted to pills. Mm -hmm. Um, But I want to watch it again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I have, I have a different perspective of it now. Yeah. Now you can Just, be like the the veteran that calls out the the inaccuracies in war movies, not a yeah, inaccuracies I mean, but, in, a, in a drug. But show. there's there's a there's like a, even a certain shot, like the cinematography of showing a needle close up going to a vein. You see the the small blood kind of shoot through, and then you see it plunge. And yeah. I'm like, dude, that's so accurate because I've watched people do that in a bedroom, and it's me not being a drug addict. It makes me like kind of like I don't want to watch that because it brings me back to those experiences so you just brought up um something that uh i would say is almost ritualistic for anybody that is a junkie Mm -hmm. um in the sense that i did i wrote a post on this uh a while back but so have you given an iv dan or or both either one of you oh yeah i know a lot of them a lot of ivs yeah and so when you give the iv you see uh the flashback and then yeah and Okay, knowing that you hit it. Okay. So now I want you to try to imagine you're doing that to yourself. And you know that as soon as the flashback hits, that you are literally milliseconds away from the most incredible feeling that you can achieve. Mm, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So when you said watching that little bit of blood go in there, so when you make a meth mixture, okay, um, at least the ones that I made, uh, the density of the liquid is different than blood. So they won't mix. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, so you, you can see the blood little, float. You can see little tiny veins of blood shoot through the entire syringe if you hit a good vein. Okay. Um, and so when you brought that up, you're like, oh, you see the little tiny bit of blood. So the other thing that happens when you shoot up is your esophagus will burn and you will have this heat in the center of your body. Okay. So when I have euphoric recalls, we were just talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I have them often. Usually if I'm if my brain is stagnant if i'm trying to go to sleep something like that um my brain's like hey remember that one time that you shot up doing this that was really cool um and i'm like and uh my body will get hot my face turned red for a second my armpits are sweating when you brought that up because my brain immediately was like yeah that's kind of cool um and i caught it because i so so i guess to answer your question do i have those things yes have i put in a net to make sure that they can't snowball I hope so. I believe so. People listening are like, but why the fuck did you bring that up? No, no, it, no. I'm, I'm glad you did because <laughs> yeah. it's, more, it's more organic and raw. Like there's people that are listening to this that, that might have some sort of background with military, but not know anything about drugs. I just look at it as the educational purpose because yeah. like I said, I've, I've never touched drugs um, and I've been surrounded by probably almost 50% of my friends in like high school using them and seen people strung out laying on top of each other in bedrooms. And it's just like, when I see it from sober eyes, it still even affects me in a way. Cause then it just takes me back to that memory that I want to try and block out. 
So I can imagine what it does for somebody that enjoys that memory. You know what I mean? It, yeah, it's, I mean, it's an interesting. And that, I mean, that's the, the hard part with it is, is training yourself to not enjoy it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I, to, to, to bring it around to something else that uh, the veterans listening might be able to understand. Um, or even anybody, uh, that adrenaline rush you get from, uh, roller coasters, the first firefight you were in, uh, your first football game, whatever it is, everybody gets that adrenaline rush at some point in mm-hmm. time. And some people take to them, uh, take to that adrenaline rush and, uh, usually end up in the military, I honestly think. But, um, and so, yeah, like I'd, I'm going to search it and, and try to feel that cause it, it makes you feel good to, to flirt with the fragility of your existence as yeah. part of an addiction. Mm-hmm. Every time you shoot up might be the last time you shoot up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and I won't go into details, but it's, it's interesting because, you know, I know my, uh, my dad's tried them for a mm-hmm. little bit at one point or another in his life. And I think, uh, I really look up to him because of how strong he was able to just overnight cold turkey cut out of his life, you know, to save my mom, to save me. But it's interesting when I watch him because, he can watch movies, you know, he can dabble in medicinal marijuana, he can have a beer or two every once in a while, and it doesn't affect him. It doesn't take him back. But I know that some people, it can just like, you can't even put a well, beer around them or it'll I, just trigger. I know it's a completely different, well, it might not be, it might be very, very much so connected. And maybe that's why you've been able to adapt to your PTSD as well as uh, addiction, drug addiction, is it's the same sort of triggers. Like some people will feel something or hear something or see something that'll trigger PTSD. And some people are going to have a negative effect from that. Mm -hmm. Other people will process it and be like, damn, I remember that. That was a really shitty moment. I know how to process it and move on and not make it like something that's going to negatively affect me or those around me. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's what I did with both PTSD and, and addiction is like, okay, that bothered me but why? Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was blessed, I guess it uh, might catch people off guard. I spent a lot of time in isolation when I was locked up um, mm-hmm. all together. I think it was like three or four months total. Uh, and if you're ever end up in a situation where you're entirely isolated, um, within two weeks, you start talking to yourself within two yeah. more weeks, you start responding. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I was able to delve into myself to try to understand myself better. And uh, I recommend that to anybody that's listening. Like if you're struggling with anything, like find out why. Like, Be alone. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that you said that because there's times, uh, you know, Dan always catches me. I always say the same thing. I'm like, I'm done traveling. And he's like, are you really done this time? And then like two weeks later, I'm going somewhere else. Yeah. But it's it's because I, I think honestly, the first time I really started to figure myself out is I spent a month on the road before I moved out here to North Carolina. And I encourage people like you want to get to know yourself, you know, maybe not a month long, but I spent a month in nature alone without really anybody camping and all that. And you kind of face a lot of things inside of you that you don't necessarily want to face, but you're challenged to do so. And it's interesting that when you're in isolation, like you said, being locked up, I'm, I'm assuming it was the same for you. Like you didn't want to face those things, but you had no other choice. No, I, I mean, I did a, I did a good time or I did a good job. I think at least in the beginning of getting put in there of trying to distract myself with anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've read like romance novels in jail, bro. Like any book they would give me, I would read like, I don't, <laughs> I, and then I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, 
I couldn't keep the intrusive thoughts out anymore. Yeah. Um, and they, they honestly started with uh, the way that I was allowing people to treat were my first intrusive thoughts. Um, so like I said, I didn't, I didn't value myself at the time. And so I allowed people to treat me poorly. Um, I use drugs as a, as a social connection, mm-hmm. uh, all, all sorts of stuff. And um, I like, I started looking at it and I was like, the younger you wouldn't have let anybody do that to you. Like, why is it okay now? Why is that person yeah. okay to do that to you? And uh, I realized that it's not, that it's not. Like I I was putting band-aids on things as an appeasement to try to move forward and it, it wasn't right. Yeah, I think the best thing is to ask yourself, would the eight-year-old me approve of who I am today? Mm. I can't ask that version because he was soft. I, I asked the teen version. <laughs> well, the fifteen-year-old version. Yeah. So um, I want to I want to keep going. Um, how you met your girlfriend and and how that story transpires. Okay. Uh, so where we were in the story is I just got locked up. Um, I wasn't sure how long I'd be locked up exa- exactly. I just, they said they were going to jail. I said, okay, let's do that. Which uh, real quick is honestly the most disheartening sound you can ever be told. If you ever have to stand in a courtroom and the judge is like, all right, bailiff, take this man into custody. You're like, shit, I don't get to go home. Um, But so I I went to jail and um, it actually wasn't that bad. I spent a lot of time in isolation and then Mm -hmm. I got transferred to a bigger jail where it was... I was able to interact with people. So honestly, that part wasn't bad. Um, And just like being in in the military, I understood that, I don't know if the the army is like this, but the Marine Corps in the infantry, if we weren't doing anything, we couldn't exactly go anywhere. Like, Mm -hmm. but we didn't have to necessarily be in our room. Like Mm -hmm. you could be at the gym or, you know what I'm saying? Like, so you were kind of confined. You had a little more room to move, but you were still kind of confined. And so you learn to fill your time with with stuff. And so um, I worked out a lot when I was in jail. I would, uh, towards the end of my time being incarcerated at that time, I would do between 750 and 1,000 burpees a day. Um, wow. I did, people say wow, but when you don't have anything else to do other than yeah. like, I, I learned to play chess, I read books, and I played, or, and I did, and I worked out. Like that's all I did until I got a job. Um, but so I got released out of there and uh, I ran into, I got released out of there September 16th. Um, two days later on my birthday, I ran into my now girlfriend, Come here. that lady. <laughs> Slide her right in. <laughs> um, I ran into her at the gas station. Um, one of her older children had just gotten a surgery done. Uh, they'd been at the hospital all night. And uh, in her words, she thought that she looked horrible. Um, to me, she looked like an angel. Uh, we grew up together. We met each other when we were six and we went through school and everything together. Uh, I tried to pursue her in high school, apparently not hard enough because she dated my best friend instead of me. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, after high school, she, uh, she got married, um, and adopted, uh, four kids from that marriage and gave birth to one. Wow. She did that when she was 18 because she is a saint. And so now fast forward her life to there. Um, I see her and I'm like, Oh, hi, Dara. And she walks over and she's talking to me. And so to be respectful, because the last time I'd interacted with her, I knew she was married. And so I was like, Oh, hi, how are you? How's your family? How's your husband? You know, everything asking polite questions. 
and uh, she tells me that she got divorced. And I thought, okay, that I looked sincere and sounded sincere when I said, I'm sorry to hear that. But apparently, according to her, I looked like a wolf looking at a baby sheep. You said game on. <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that. And immediately followed it up with, we should get coffee sometime. Side note about me. I've never drank coffee. I don't like coffee. It tastes like angry earwax. Okay. But if I got the opportunity to sit across from the table from this beautiful angel while she sipped a cup of coffee, I would choke it down. It's fine. She said, yeah, let's do that. And then she ignored me for three months, which is honestly probably for the best because I went to jail a couple more times that month or those three months. Um, and then, so we said, like I said, uh, every time I would go to jail, if I could talk my way into a circle and get sent somewhere else, I would. So that I, uh, December 6th, I got a re released from jail. Um, December 8th, I got rearrested after uh, the Missoula County Sheriff's Department raided my hotel room. Um, I got arrested and got sent to the VA Treatment Center in Helena, Montana. Um, mm -hmm. I specifically requested that one because at that one, you can have your cell phone and tobacco. That's where my family lives. In Helena? In Helena. That okay. small little historical town. Yeah, there's in, unless you're in uh, politics, there's no point in living there. No. Or but, you're a cowboy. <laughs> or a cowboy. Um, so I went there, and uh, those of you that can't tell in my video, I'm obese. Uh, and Dara posted a picture on Snapchat of a, a meal she had cooked. And uh, it looked delicious. It was some mashed potatoes, some steak, some asparagus. There was like some strawberry cut up on it. Like it looked beautiful, right? And so I messaged her and I said, what, you can cook too? And so we started talking. <laughs> I immediately was honest with her uh, to, to use words that she has said before. My candor with her established a bedrock for us to build upon, even though neither one of us were looking for that at the time. I told her what I had done, that I'd been to jail, that I was a drug addict, where I was, everything. Like, um, and she didn't judge me. She just talked to me about it, asked questions, tried to understand it. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, we became each other's solace. Um, enjoying uh, our brief little moments, we were able to message or, to, or video call or whatever. Um, and I messed it up at one point in time. So I was used to being in the street and talking to women that don't, have as high of value or morals of themselves as Dara does. And she sent me a picture of her in which she looked beautiful. Um, it was her and her kids. Uh, and uh, I responded with, God damn, girl, you look thick as fuck. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> yeah. So we were, we were uh, messaging on Snapchat at the time. So they'd been pretty instantaneous responses. She didn't respond for a half hour, for 45 minutes, for an hour. We're getting over an hour now and I messaged her and I was like, Hey, I'm sorry. Like you look beautiful. Like I'm used to talking to other women. Like those words were inappropriate instantly. She says, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Tommy, you've read a lot of romance novels in jail. And I was about to say, once you start talking about your girlfriend, <laughs> your whole tone changed. And I was like, Oh, he's got a little romantic side to him. And then I was like, damn girl. I think it's he was no, reading no. the wrong romance novels in jail. <laughs> I did. I, I, yeah, I guess. Um, but so after that, we were able to talk more and everything. And so I got released from that treatment center February 4th of 2019. Um, and I immediately, so I was supposed to go to Missoula County. 
and stay in Missoula County because that's where my probation was because Lake mm -hmm. County didn't want me back up here. Um, I didn't listen and I came back to Lake County to see Dara. Um, we hung out and so to my surprise because of us talking and everything, um, I stayed sober five days out of that treatment center, uh, which doesn't sound that crazy, but that was the longest I'd ever willingly still stayed sober out of a treatment center. Wow. Um, and I, and I point that distinction out because if you put a drug addict in a controlled environment, they'll stay sober. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They'll conform to their environment. Um, but it's when they're released back to the streets, when it becomes their choice, when it's a different thing. But I stayed sober for five days. And upon relapse, I told Dara that I relapsed. Um, I showed up to her house. I sat outside of her door. So once again, we were talking about um, houses that aren't handicap accessible. I sat on the ground in front of Dara's door in the snow and told her I relapsed. Um, this was great. I'm sorry. I'm a piece of shit again. You take care. Because she has a career and kids and everything. And this is a tiny town. There's 5,000 people that, that live yeah. in this town. So when anybody sneezes, people know what's going on. And so I didn't think she needed the negativity that was going to come along with it. Um, and she said, no. She's like, you're not going anywhere. She's like, uh, I don't like that you do drugs, but that's not you. Which kind of mm -hmm. caught me off guard because you guys kind of saw her briefly in the in the video. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to say this quietly. She's a lot hotter than I am. Um, I don't know if you can hear that, so I'll say it louder. She's a lot hotter than I am. Okay. I had to approach NASA to borrow their space shuttle to try to le reach the league that she is in. Uh, I threw a grappling hook out the window, hooked her real quick, and then crashed the space shuttle down and brought her down here. She doesn't know that she is actually not from this lower level of dating. So don't tell her. You have an alien is what you're saying. I guess, dude. Um, <laughs> but no, and so it caught me off guard. Okay. And uh, I... I don't know if I said this a second ago, but uh, Dara is sapiosexual, which means that she's attracted to intelligence. Okay. And so mm -hmm. when I use, I don't feel like I'm as smart or I'm as, as quick witted. Uh, I don't like being a flaily creature. So everything is really controlled and deliberate and on purpose. So like the flamboyancy and charisma I have now doesn't exist when I'm high on meth. Like everything is very controlled and deliberate. Um, which isn't the person that Dara likes. Dara actually likes the controlled chaos that exists of me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I tried to control my use, uh, which any addict will tell you that that's not a thing. And it doesn't matter if you're an alcoholic or a junkie, like you can't control your use. Um, and I would have told them, yeah, you can't. But this time I did. If I was going to see her, I wouldn't use, uh, which made me use less. Mm. But I had already fucked up enough in the past that it didn't keep me out of jail um the first valentine's day that dara and i hung out she took me to go see my probation officer and uh, my probation officer threw me in jail and dara drove from missoula back to lake county um, this is also the only time i ever bonded out so every time i was thrown in jail i had a minimum bond of fifty thousand dollars like i don't know why they like I'm like, I, I'm Jeez. not paying that. This was the one time it was five grand. So 10% was 500. So um, I called my sister. I called my mom. And I was like, hey, uh, can you guys come sign my bond warrant? I have the cash. I'll bond myself out. And they said no, because they didn't want to be held liable for the five grand if I didn't go to court. Mm -hmm. But this incredible woman sitting over there uh, was willing to. Uh, like I said, so she's 
divorced now, so she's a single mother, um, but was willing to sign a line and be held liable for five grand if I didn't go to court. Wow. Uh, and she did. She came and she signed the contract. And uh, when we got in the car, I told her, I said, you understand that if I don't go to court, that you're liable for five grand. And she looked me in my face and she said, you'll go. It wasn't a threat. It wasn't anything. It was just unadulterated, pure belief in the fact that I wouldn't fuck her over, which blew my mind because to me, I was literally, I was a snake in the garden of Eden. Like I didn't, you know what I'm saying? Like I didn't belong where I was, but somehow I was allowed to be there. Um, so you've, we fast forward uh, February 20th. That doesn't sound right. February 21st. Um, I go back to jail. Uh, it wasn't because I skipped my court date or anything. It was because my PO had built a case against me to re revoke my probation. Um, Dara took me down to my PO. I went to, uh, or no, Dara didn't. Sorry. I went over to see Dara the night before. Um, knowing that I had to see my PO the next day, knowing that, that I'd missed my appointment uh, from the, the 20th, knowing I'd go to jail. So hoping, you know, I'd, I'd went over there for uh, crude intentions, if you will. Um, and when I laid next to her on the couch, uh, I felt safe and I fell asleep. Um, and I slept all the way until the next morning. And I woke up uh, when she woke me up to say that she was taking... Uh, her daughter to get tonsil surgery um, i slept through the entire surgery and i woke up that afternoon to dara rubbing my back dara and her daughter nissa were sitting next to me on the couch um and i woke up there was no weird looks i didn't have to worry that like my stuff was missing or anything weird like that um i just felt safe and uh i told dara that i had to go i had to go check in with my po i wasn't sure what would happen um and I gave her uh, a hug and a kiss and I headed out. I got a ride down to my probation office and I went to jail. Uh, I called Dara from the jail and said, hey, um, I got thrown in jail. I'm not gonna be able to see you. I don't know how long I'm gonna be in jail. She said, okay. And we talked on the phone periodically. And then when I got the paperwork saying that I was actually being revoked and moved back to Lake County uh, jail, um, that's when I realized like, oh, I might actually be in jail for a long time. Uh, so Lake County sent a bench warrant to Missoula County to have me taken back to Lake County and mm -hmm. ironically put back in the same exact isolation cell that I was put in when I started this charge. Um, hmm. Kind of funny full circle thing. I was also had a large enough bond. Uh, so this gives you an idea of what the Lake County court system thought of me. Um, I had a $500,000 bond. Okay? Wow, it was the highest geez. one in the, in the jail. Uh, the next closest one to me was a dude that was in there for homicide. Wow. Uh, if that gives you an idea of, I'm, I'm not trying to be boastful. That's just how the court system where I'm from viewed me at the time. That's crazy how they put you on the same level as a homicide <laughs> for, for drug abuse. Above. Yeah. Yeah, my bond was above his. Um, like 100,000 or 200,000. That's way above. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, and so... Now that I was being revoked, I thought I was going to be down for a long time. So talking to Dara, I, I told her, like, look, dude, like you are you are a catch. You're too incredible, man. Like, don't wait for me. Like, um, and she would say stuff like, no, I like you. Like, and I was like, no, like, I don't know how long I'm going to be gone. And 
uh, I have this view that um, when you go into jail, it's like a timeless echo. It's like a timeless bubble of Groundhog's Day. It's the same shit. They're going to bring me food. They're going to bring me food. They're going to bring me food. I sleep. They're going to bring me like, it's the same shit. But you have to understand that while you're going through a Groundhog's Day, everybody outside isn't. Mm-hmm. They're interacting, they're living their lives. And so for you to ask somebody to put their love on hold for you because you fucked up doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And so I, I wanted Dara to, to live a full, happy life. If I was going to be gone a year, three years, five years, I didn't know. And it didn't matter. I fucked up. I ate the meal. I have to pay the bill. That's how that works. Um, she wasn't accepting that. She's like, nope, uh-uh, I'm going to wait for you. I was like, don't do that. That's stupid. Um, and uh, so we talked every day. I did, um, And I didn't like talking to her every day. This is silly. I didn't like talking to her every day because it's expensive. Like mm-hmm. it bothered me that she was willing to pay money to talk to me on the phone because I didn't feel like I was that important. In us talking, though, we I talked to my attorney and um, my attorney worked a deal to get me released to go to a PTSD treatment center um, because he was going to his whole case that he was building was that I do drugs because I have really bad PTSD. Um, and I told him, no, that's not why. And he told me, cool, I need you to shut up when we're in the courtroom. Um, <laughs> and so uh, here was the catch, though, for me to be released from jail to go to this PTSD treatment center somebody had to willingly let me move in with them and be an officer of the court and tell the court Jeez. if I messed up. I didn't even try to call my mom or my sisters um, or any of my family. They all live here, but I didn't try to call them because I wasn't going to ask them to put themselves in a funny situation, uh, to put themselves in a situation where their boy or their husband or whatever, because um, I didn't get along with my sister's husband or my mom's husband or who I now call uh, stepdad, I guess, uh, at the time. And uh, so I wasn't I wasn't going to try to do that. I wasn't actually even allowed at either of the houses. But I was talking to Dara and it got brought up in conversation and I didn't ask her. And she said, I'll do it. I was like, wait, hold on, hold on. Um, you understand that that our relationship prior to this had been kept on the down low. It was really quiet. You know, um, I would have to move in with you. OK, live with you, you and your kids. Um, their dad would have to agree it like, like your work might not be happy as a fact like yeah. and she's like he's like i don't care we'll deal with we'll deal with it okay so i called my attorney and I, and I told him and my attorney immediately called dara and said you understand who you're letting move into your house right and she's like yeah i grew up with him and then the prosecuting attorney called dara and said you understand who you're allowing <laughs> to move into your house right oh, shit. And dara was like yeah i grew up with him and you're okay with this. And yeah. So after well, all this was going on, Dar and I talked on the phone one night and uh, I had what I like to call an honest encounter with reality. Mm-hmm. After we got off the phone, I was reading my book and the lights turned off. And so I, I closed my book and I went over to my beautifully polished stainless steel mirror and started brushing my teeth with my uh, Bob Barker toothpaste. And I looked at myself um, as best you can in the back of a polished spoon. And uh, I didn't like what I saw. Mm. I wasn't happy with who I was anymore. Um, and I didn't I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't I didn't want to do this anymore. But I didn't I didn't know how to do anything else. I'd done this so long. I had no idea how to be anything else. Um, and the next morning, 
uh, I talked to Dar on the phone or the next day. I'm not sure if it was a morning. And I told her that if everything works out, if I get released when I'm supposed to, uh, that I will never put Matt or my old lifestyle above you. And uh, when the words fell out of my mouth, I didn't know that I could believe them. And Dara told me close to a year later that she didn't know that she could believe them either when I said them. Mm -hmm. um, but she was willing to try. So I got released from jail March 7th. I knew when I got released from jail that I could not do drugs anymore because the minute that I do drugs, I don't care about anything and nothing matters. Uh, but so we talked about being around drugs um, and seeing them on TV. So I brought up loyalty earlier as well, too. So I had an acquaintance, a business associate um, from the street that was still in the street uh, that had called me and said, bro, I need your help. I need your network, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I said, OK, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went to go help him. I told Dara. Dara didn't get mad. Dara didn't get upset. She said, OK. Um, I told her I wouldn't be gone very long. She at the time didn't say anything. But after talking about it later, she's like, I knew you wouldn't be right back. And uh, I left. Smart woman. I, I left and I went. Uh, I went and did this stuff, and I handled handled this stuff. And uh, I get a text on my phone from to my phone at like two in the morning. And when I left, it was like one or three in the afternoon. I had a text at two in the morning from Dara, and all it says is, "Hey, um, I'm still awake. Uh, if you need a ride or anything, and I cooked food. Uh, it's in the oven, ready for you when you get home." And uh, I would have thought I got hit by a truck, to be entirely honest. Like I had a, a, a visceral reaction to reading that, that there was this angel, this woman that I didn't deserve, that, that was outside of, of, of my reality, that is not mad at me because I'm off doing dumb dope boy stuff, doing hood rat mm -hmm. stuff. She doesn't care. She wants to know if she can help. And she also wants me to know that she has prepared me a meal. Right? And I had her come get me immediately. There was one other time that um, this is the only time in, in my sobriety uh, that I almost relapsed. Um, so once again, the same person, I was at a place I shouldn't have been. I watched the girl trying to uh, to inject herself with meth and uh, she missed, like I don't know, 10 or 11 times, couldn't hit Jeez. a vein. Um, and it was dry, like it was physically bothering me. And so I was like, hey, can I can I? can I help you? And so I did it. Um, I hit the vein, shot her up and everything. And uh, you alluded to this talking about breaking bad. Yeah. So while there is the the physical thing going on inside of you, there is an obvious thing going on on the outside of you. You can see your eyes roll back, like you make kind of mm -hmm. like an orgasm face. Um, and when I saw that I had been sober, maybe a week, maybe less. Every atom fiber everything that i'm made of vibrated get high get high get high um and i called it like i saw it and i was like i gotta go i'm gonna relapse like i gotta and i haven't been back around situations like that mm. okay and so i had said that i rebuilt my life in a way that i don't i'd have to willingly go go against it yeah so i realized that i had a void i know i'm a person that if i stagnate that i immediately start doing stuff that I shouldn't like I'll break things to see what's inside of it like I don't know I just if I stagnate like I um and so I went on on a search for this and uh to fill this void and I found it in a weird spot uh running or my version of running uh in my wheelchair I was in vet court in Missoula Montana um and they were 
talking about uh, that there would be a veteran suicide awareness and prevention half marathon. Hmm. Um, I'd been doing some running in my wheelchair and uh, was like, okay, I can do that. The furthest I'd gone was four or five miles, something like that. And I was like, nah, I can, I can, I can take this on. And uh, I, I took it on and I hated it to be entirely honest. It was set up in a four lap uh, succession. The first lap I ran it and I was like, Hey man, that's a 5k. You can be done. No one will judge you. You're the only wheelchair person here. Uh, but this other little dark cynical mind or voice in my mind was like, no, I'll judge you. I will judge you forever. Uh, so I ran the second lap and I was like, you can stop. And that other voice was like, no, you can't. Mm -hmm. So I ran the third lap. And by the end of the third lap, beginning of the fourth lap, my shoulders, my triceps, my chest, everything burned so bad that I couldn't feel it anymore. That it was, I was literally a perpetual motion machine. Like, I don't even think I was telling my arms to push my wheels. Like they were just doing it. Um, and, uh, as I started the fourth lap, I see the judge of the vet court that I'm in, she's running it. And, uh, I hate going to vet court. It actually wasn't even in my decision for me to go to vet court. They somehow snuck me in there. Uh, later I would get paperwork, uh, to get taken back out of it, but I see the, the judge for vet court, she's running the race and I tell her she better hurry up. And, uh, she's like, Oh, I'm going to catch you. And so I passed her and, uh, I said something like, if I beat you, do I not have to come to court Monday? I don't remember what it was. Um, <laughs> but I kept driving because I had this weird feeling that she was right behind me kind of. And mm -hmm. so I kept driving and driving and driving like beyond what I was capable of. Uh, and then the craziest thing happened, <laughs> the anger, pain, jealousy, self-loathing, everything that was just kind of sitting inside of me dissolved. It was completely gone. Um, I didn't know that there was a word for it at the time. Uh, Dara's taught me it since uh, it's called catharsis. I achieved catharsis by pushing my body to the point where it wanted to give up. Mm -hmm. Um, but something else incredible happened. I was high. Mm. So going from being a person that sought out a chemical high um, to finding a high that I fabricated mm. by trying to break myself off was incredible to me. Um, and the high lasted forever, well into the night. Like I was on cloud nine, like after I got done with the race, like I didn't even feel stiff. I was like, what? Like, um, but it was incredible. So I kept chasing it and chasing it and chasing it. Uh, unfortunately, I've now pushed that high so far in front of me that the last time I tapped into it, I ran 40 consecutive miles. Jeez. Um, and, and since then, I have ran nine half marathons and two full marathons. Um, in the year 2020, between January 1st and December 31st, I ran 2,431 miles um, in my wheelchair that year. That's crazy. Uh, I love it, dude. It, it centers me. Like we were saying about you spending the month out in the woods and stuff, like the discomfort of it, like it centers me. I There's a, there's a Zen to it and everybody has it. Mm -hmm. Everybody has that one thing. Like for you, it's running, you know, for Dan, it's, it's something completely different for me. It's being in the outdoors, mm -hmm. you know, and Tommy, I gotta say, man, it's, it's crazy to, to hear all this because and I know Dan's probably thinking the same thing, but like we got to know you. I mean, we shared drinks and hung out, you know, at that event, but I had no idea like the story and kind of all the experiences you've been through. And just to hear about Dara, I mean, I don't even need to say it, but it's like, man, you found like a solid woman. 
Like uh, somebody that not, really not solid, not solid. Like you said, otherworldly, a, yeah, a unicorn in people's terms to where like somebody that puts your feelings first and really cares about you no matter the circumstance. And I truly believe that that was like your calling, like something kept pulling you and something kept pulling her to stay by your side. And it's just incredible to hear that relationship that you guys have. Mm. No, I did. It, uh, I wouldn't be, we wouldn't have met at the Salt Lake event. Um, I wouldn't be working for Mission Six Zero. I wouldn't, Dara and I wouldn't be launching uh, a company through Warrior Rising. Uh, we wouldn't be doing any of this stuff if, mm -hmm. if I wouldn't have crossed paths with her again. Uh, and I've, I've told this to her, like, I was completely okay with slowly dying in the graves that I dug. I, I, it is, It was what it was. Like, I had built... Uh, an empire of dirt, if you will, and I yeah. was proud of it. Hmm. What do you What do you think um, was the most, I guess, beneficial moment for self growth that you've learned from being in prison or being locked up or going through the experiences of drug abuse that you've been through? Ownership hmm. doesn't matter if you succeed, if you fail, if you didn't do anything. Ownership and inaction. So. One big thing with my recovery, um, with me going to to jail, you said prison. Um, I actually never made it to a state prison. Uh, okay. I don't want to, to claim anything that I wasn't. Um, I just that's just not where I ended up. Uh, yeah, I did spend almost two years incarcerated, and that's why I say it that way. But no, so ownership, you know what I'm saying? I was a drug addict um, when my house got raided. I've, I've talked to other drug addicts. Prime example a person that I used to do drugs with, um, she still does drugs. Her house just recently got raided. Uh, mm. And uh, she said um, something of like, these cops won't leave me alone or something to that effect. And I was like, yeah, of course they won't. Like, you're, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you're breaking the law. It, and well, so taking ownership of it and then the, the take action thing. So I believed that a lot of a lot more things would bother me being sober. Um, I liked like as much as I hated my my drug life, I liked the chaos of it. Like, mm -hmm. I just I'm more comfortable in chaos. It's who I am. Um, so I thought that living a mundane, uh, you know, dad like lifestyle was going to be boring, but I love it. Um, and I thought that establishing and maintaining sobriety would have been a lot harder. Uh, but it wasn't until the last attempt, if you will, that I actually even truly tried that I took action on doing it. I stood in my own way the whole time because I thought like, oh, so everyone really props this up that, you know, like it's one day at a time for the rest of your life. I don't agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, first, the first year was establishing sobriety and recovery. Mm -hmm. This, uh, anything beyond that is maintaining. If you did your work in the first year, I, it from here it's just building. Like I, yeah. I. Well, it, it it's so important with what you said too. Is like ownership and choice, right? Everything that you do is your choice. Mm -hmm. Like yes, there are outside influences that can that can cause you to react and make a different choice. But ultimately, the choice is yours. And like you said, I mean. Dara is a, an angel from the heavens, literally, but <laughs> you still chose to put her above your addiction. Yeah. You chose to put her 
above all the other bad choices you could have made. And because she deserved it. Sorry exactly. No, but no, that's actually put you before your addiction. Yeah. And on the flip side, like if, if, and they talk about, you know, you talk about this all the time and whether you're talking about addiction, PTSD, recovery, um, people who've gone through, um, you know, abuse and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like you have to still make the choice to recover yourself. Yeah. Like y- nobody can do it for you. It has to be your own choice. Yeah. It, it's like that thing. I, I'm going to play dry this or plagiarize this incorrectly too. But the thing that I see circle around social media sometimes that like um, life is hard, you know, being fat is hard. Being thin is hard. Being broke is hard. Being rich is hard. Like mm-hmm. choose your heart. Like you have to make a choice and whether people realize it or not, but inactivity is still a choice. You're choosing to mm-hmm. stagnate. Yeah. Yeah. No so, choice is still a choice. There, there, yeah. And there's nothing easy about life whatsoever. Everything is hard. (laughs) When you realize that life is going to suck, but it's also Mm going to be incredible at the same time. But if you're focused on the fact that it's hot outside or it's cold outside or that the neighbors have a nicer car or something like that, you're going to miss the first couple steps of your child walking or the pure joy on your child's face as they win a a sports game Um, or or the, the, the pit of sadness when they feel like they've failed, like there's so many little things that, that make up the human experience. But if you're worried about the things that aren't right, you'll never see the things that are. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And and I think, you know, you, we lightly touched on, you know, mission six zero and I want to kind of go into that, but what, um, obviously besides the events that we've met up with, what are you working on at the moment with them? Um, with mission six zero, I am still a keynote speaker for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am helping, I'm one of the veterans on their Endless Six uh, mm-hmm. portion of the Deliberate Discomfort Challenge. Um, and I still do some of their masterclass calls uh, with some of their contacts that, that want to go through the masterclasses, yeah. which I'm famously mm-hmm. plug. If you uh, are a company that is listening to this, think that might uh, work, go to mission60.com, check out their stuff. Uh, Jason Van Camp wrote an incredible book. It's called Deliberate Discomfort. Um, incredible veteran stories in there and yeah, you, uh, you got to it book i was, too, I was you yeah yeah you, you totally beat me to it because <laughs> i was just about to tell people like you know that are listening that are interested or own a veteran business and you know they're looking to further promote it or further grow it um obviously dan and i and tom have a company united valor we went through the program and met you guys in salt lake city and it's it was truly an, an incredible experience mm-hmm. and um i know dan personally just did the deliberate discomfort challenge mm-hmm I maybe did a quarter of the workout portion of <laughs> yeah. it and didn't it, it's crazy when you see like what's on that list. But for people that are looking for just a change in lifestyle, like a massive change, that's, that's one challenge I would highly recommend. Absolutely. I went through uh, the deliberate discomfort challenge, the first one in January. Um, and actually Dara is going through it right now. Uh, mm-hmm. started recently. Uh, it's an incredible challenge. It, it focuses on six domains. It it made me realize when I did it how one dimensional I was as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. And then uh, you brought up Warrior Rising. Uh, please go check out warriorrising.org. Yeah. Uh, you guys started your own business. Uh, Dara and I are trying to start ours. We were at a business shower event in Napa last week, two weeks, I don't know, recently. Um, 
and uh, we did not win. Uh, the gentleman that did win built an incredible online learning platform for the vision impaired. Mm -hmm. But uh, I brought up that we didn't win because the cool thing about Warrior Rising is even if you don't win one of their business shower events, they're not going to drop you. Uh, they're still working with us, helping us refine our stuff and bring our product yeah. to market. What is that product? I'm I'm actually genuinely curious. Yeah. So our uh, our product is a specialty designed wheelchair bag designed by the wheelchair user. Um, the ones that are on the market are made of low quality product or designed by somebody that I don't think planned to use them. Honestly, mm -hmm. they're just like, ah, it's a bag. There you have it. It's yours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, and we have some some other things that I'm not gonna include in the podcast, but uh, some some hopefully industry uh, breaking uh, add-ons that will allow wheelchair users to feel more independent. Mm, that's awesome. Well, hopefully um, on your guys' path to that, as things get updated, we can share more on it. Yeah. What's, uh, love to is share there anything more. we can share? What's the name of your uh, company? Could not, uh, the, the product that we, we took there and presented them to, uh, they said they they liked it, but we thought small town or small yeah small town small mind type thing, yeah. uh, and they introduced us to some people that have larger networks that are more knowledgeable in yeah, the field nice. um, to have us to to reapproach it. I can show a prototype that we built uh, that shows our logo. I guess we yeah the bag yeah yeah. Oh, here, That's pretty go. incredible what you guys are doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Could be over there by the supplements, babe. <laughs> babe, I man, I, I, I leaned out of your way as you walked behind me. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this is uh, this is our our first prototype that we brought there. Um, nice. Okay. Yeah, that's our logo. So that's awesome. No, yeah. it's uh, it's exciting. You know what what comes from a community of people who are really trying to like bond together mm -hmm. and and promote each other really and and just make sure that everybody can find their own success. But I think especially when it comes to to stories like yours, like mm. I know you're gonna say, oh, it's just a story, you know, because you're humble and I I know you are. But um, truthfully, I think it does inspire a lot of people to really to take action and to uh, discount inaction and try and change something in their lives for the better. Mm -hmm. And whether that's a small change or something significant like overcoming drug addiction or alcoholism or whatever it is, you know, looking at their physical disabilities or any sort of inability to do something that it's just a choice. Like, yeah. like we said, and, and uh, I think you're an inspiration to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I think, I, you know, as we, you know, start to kind of come to an end, I, I want to know from, you know, your perspective, I think it's important from everything that you've been through. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of veterans who have struggled with similar, you know, positions that you've been in. What are some like words of advice to people that are either transitioning or maybe going through some of the drug abuse or just trying to get back to society the proper way? Um, if you feel unhappy, find out why, I guess. Like, look, to to give you the advice that worked the best for me, uh, look in the mirror, evaluate evaluate who you are. Uh, mm -hmm. You brought up Bo, like, would who you are currently uh, jive with eight-year-old you? 
Um, and if you're not living true to yourself, then then everything is going to be even harder. The minute yeah. that I changed and, and became more true to who I truly am, uh, life synced up. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the more important quotes I've heard that's kind of stuck with me is if you're green, you're, you grow. And if you're ripe, you rot. Mm-hmm. So you always have to be constantly looking at yourself as a vine or a plant. You know, if you can constantly keep yourself green and you're constantly learning things and truly being inspired and not wanting to just kind of sit there and, you know, deal with the struggles and things you've been with, but be more on top of it and say, hey, you know what? I've been through this, but fuck it. I'm going to excel above it. I want to find out who I really am. And going back to that little kid inside of you, you know, does that little kid agree with your mindset? Does that little boy or that little girl in you agree with where you are in life? Or would they say, hey, you know, put a smile on your face. Let's get to work. You just brought up something that made me think of something. Um, be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the the way I was raised growing up and also in the military, like men aren't vulnerable. We don't show mm-hmm. our emotion. We don't show our weakness. I can't do that. Um, I also didn't think that love was real. But to have a woman that is out of my league uh, reassemble me with belief, trust, and love, um, but only because I was vulnerable, I have to believe now. Mm-hmm. It's it's incredibly powerful. I mean, vulnerability builds so much trust, and truly being vulnerable is how you can how you can connect with people on a completely different level that is indescribable, honestly, until you do it. Well, Tommy, I, I can't thank you enough for everything yeah. and for sharing your story once again. I know I know you get asked to share it a few times here and there, but uh, <laughs> but honestly, it's it's truly powerful. And for you to go through as much as you have and still, you know, obviously have a life changing moment and the woman next to you, uh, to just have a positive outlook on life mm-hmm. and to want to inspire other people to be their own change and and you know really make a choice for for growth. Um, just can't thank you enough for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, uh, Bo and Dan for having me. And, uh, of course that's our job as human beings. If we are inspired by something or somebody, it's our job to carry that inspiration to the next person. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, again, thank you. And, uh, we look forward to keeping in touch with you and hearing about the progress of your business. And, um, you know, just thanks again for being on and sharing it. It really means a lot. And I'm sure the listeners are really going to enjoy this episode and and hopefully take away a very important lesson from it. Yeah. Thanks, Tommy.